And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me in the studio today is Pastor Mark Diedrich. Mark, it's great to have you. Great to be here, Dan. Last time we were talking about the Reformation and we looked at the life of Luther. Then in our second time together, we talked about the Augsburg Confession. We talked about him writing hymns. We talked about his life and how he was married to Catherine. He had six children. And um, I think today to get us started, we're, we're going to be, God willing, talking about translating the Bible and making the scriptures available to the folks. Um, but I just to start us off, I wanted to mention something very important, and that is um, Reformation faith tied to that is uh, the necessity of being born again of the Spirit of God. And uh, it's really neat to look at all the history or some of the theology and all of that, but um, that common thread is all through there, that uh, we as uh, people made in the image of God are born into this world as sinners, and we need to be born again, that is, born from on high by the Spirit of God. And uh, certainly that uh, that thread would run all through the Reformation. Exactly. And that's a key thing. That's the message of scriptures. Yeah. That uh, we are sinners and hopeless and helpless <laughs> apart from Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross and rose three days later. Mm. And that's the only way we're justified. We're justified by faith. And you see this whenever somebody gets working with the scriptures. You know, we saw with Luther when he started having to lecture on Romans. <laughs> Boy, the message got there. The message was was yeah. was very powerful. The the gospel message, and we have this in another individual, and of course, one that really rings very close to home for me and for you, and that's William Tyndall because he translated the Bible into English. That's neat, and that's the only language I'm comfortable with. Yeah, you know, me too. I, I never did well in the languages. I admire those. Um, of course, you had, as a pastor, you had to take Greek and Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew yes, I can, I can work with them, but, yeah. but the language I'm comfortable with, <laughs> my heart language, is English. That's key, isn't it? It is. Yeah, okay. And that's why we have Bible translators today. We have them trying to get the Bible into people's heart language. Yes. So that they can study it and they, they draw very close. And even I had a professor in seminary who was from Germany. Mm. And you could tell he was. He spoke very good English, <laughs> but he always spoke with a German accent. Yes. And we got together. He was Lutheran. I, at the time, I was Lutheran. And we got together and we would. he would always ask one of us to pray. He says, because when I pray, he prayed in his heart language, which oh, is German. There you go. Yes. Even though he he was very good at English, he, you wouldn't have a problem with him. But this is almost analogous to having a comfort food. You know, some people yeah. <laughs> like uh, meatloaf. Yeah. You know, with some ketchup on it or yeah. whatever, and and mashed potatoes. Oh, that is a comfort food. <laughs> or maybe you have your own comfort food or pizza yeah. or whatever. Um, it's analogous, I suppose, to your heart language. Right. Yeah. Now the thing was, the scriptures had not been translated in the language of the people for for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And when it came to England, and we had a man by the name of John Wycliffe who translated the Bible into English 
in the 1380s. He died 1384, I think, if my memory Mm -hmm. serves me. But the thing was, and of course, he probably wasn't the guy who translated. He had it translated initially by uh, Nicholas of Hereford, which is a very wooden translation, and then John Purvey made it a much more readable English. Mm -hmm. Well, he died a natural death, but then they dug up his bones and they made it illegal by penalty of death to have his translation. <laughs> so they were upset with this guy. That's right. But Can you I'm, imagine being upset with somebody because they had a desire to translate the Bible into the, the language of the people? <laughs> That's right. And it, it's hard to imagine. It is. It is. And it carried over even to this time as well, because as we're going to see... They dug up his bones, burned his bones, told everybody they can have his scriptures. Of course, a number of them survived, and the reason they yeah. survived is who could afford to have one of them? Yeah. The nobility, and they, you know, <laughs> if you're a powerful ruler, it's like, uh, yeah, the rules don't apply to me, you yeah, know, kind of so thing. True. That's that's why a number of them survived. But here's the problem. Look at the date. 1380s. Right. You're going to talk about the printing press, I'll And that's exactly right, Dan. <laughs> and here we have Gutenberg in 1450, thereabouts, inventing movable type, and suddenly you got printing. These guys are printing stuff all the time, and, and they're so getting neat. it out. Yeah. And so we have this individual, man by the name of William Tyndall, Born somewhere in Gloucestershire, and we don't know exactly when he was born, probably 1484, 1485. He has a fairly well-to-do family, so he gets to study at Magdalen College in Oxford, mm-hmm. takes his B.A. in 1512, takes his M.A. in 1515, and then only then he was allowed to study theology. Mm. <laughs> He was later to comment on how they filled you with all kinds of garbage before they allowed you to study the scriptures. Isn't that something? <laughs> but he, he studied the scriptures, and uh, some think he was at Cambridge between 1517 and 1521. Hmm. Erasmus had actually been there about five years earlier. But he became then a chaplain to the John Walsh, who was a ruler, and, and he was a tutor of his children. Mm-hmm. While he was doing that, by the way, he was called before the Diocese of Worcester. Some of them complained about his teachings, because at this point, Tyndall had studied the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of his teaching was, you know, suspect to them. Of course, they were holding to the canon law and that, and here Tyndall was expounding scriptures. So and he's it, becoming informed by the Word of God itself. Exactly. And where that tended to disagree with some of the practices or the canon law or something, I guess he would highlight that? Yes, yes. Okay. And of course, they were saying, well, you're going against the Pope. And apparently in the discussion somewhere, he made this statement, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth a plow in England to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. <laughs> oh, I've heard that quote before. <laughs> yeah. The plow boy. Yeah. Yes. It's one of the his more famous ones. And so at that point, he had uh, committed himself to wanting to translate the scriptures. And so he goes to London, 
And he thinks, well, if I go to London, I can get approval to do just that. And so he sought permission from the Archbishop of London, Cuthbert Tunstall. Cuthbert Tunstall would have none of it. (laughs) No way, no how. And at that point, Tyndall realized that there's no way he could translate the Bible in England. And so he heads for continental Europe. Mm. And that's where he starts translating the Bible. And he's in Hamburg, Germany for a while, and he's translating, and he has to move around. And so finally, in 1516, he gets his first edition of the New Testament out. Neat, neat. Peter Schoffer has it, and immediately as it comes out, it's, it's condemned, and it's to be burned and it's attacked immediately. Now, is this in, in the English language? It's in the English language. Yeah. So Tyndall is writing in the English language, translating from the Greek. So he's bringing that. Now, when Wycliffe translated, he translated from the Latin, mm. from the Vulgate. Okay. So Tyndall is now using probably Erasmus's Greek edition. Mm-hmm. And and translating from the Greek, he's got the New Testament. Now, the way they would do that is they would smuggle them in. He got involved with a lot of the <laughs> merchants that would take cloth goods to England, mm. and they'd wrap these in. They weren't bound. You, when you bought a Tyndall New Testament, you bought the leaves, and then you took them to a bookbinder, and okay. he would bind them for you. Interesting. And so uh, that's what so they would these do. these things were smuggled in. They were smuggled that, in. That means it was illegal. Oh, yes. Imagine trying to bring the Bible in, but it's illegal. Yes. That, that's something we can't even relate to, and yet yes. that's been, that's been uh, the case in many lands. So the irony of the whole thing is Sir Thomas More, who is one of the biggest opponents of this, <laughs> You know, Cuthbert Tunstall, the archbishop, they have their ear and they they find out where they're being sold. Mm-hmm. And they want to buy them all up and burn them. Ah, right. And so the seller gets back to Tyndall and he says, this is what they want to do. And Tyndall says, good, sell them to them. We need the money. <laughs> I can make a better one. And so that's what they did. What an attitude. They, that's oh, cool. Yeah. They sold them to him, and of course, they burned the Bibles, but Tyndall used the money to improve <laughs> his translation, and he did. He improved his translation, and then he uh, started working on the Old Testament as well. Now, in the meantime, it, to be fair, he spent some time in Wittenberg, and so he probably got a lot of Luther's advice. Oh, yeah. As to how to do mm-hmm. the translation, I don't think he copied Luther at all, but he translates the Bible. And so he's got to find a place where he thinks he's reasonably safe. And the mm-hmm. place he finds is Antwerp mm-hmm. and Belgium. And so he's there and he's translating the Bible and he's working on it. He's getting them and he's smuggling them across. And then in 1535, a man by the name of Henry Phillips, who ingratiated himself to Tyndall and had, quote-unquote, become his friend, betrays him. Oh. And he's taken Aww. into Vilvard Castle. I hate to see things like that. Yeah. In the meantime, he's had a pretty good debate going with Sir Thomas More. He's written a number of other things. Uh, I won't list them, but he's written a number of other books um, that you can read uh, to mm-hmm. this day. 
But he's in Vilvert Castle, and then in 1516, he's condemned to death. William Tyndale. And it's suggested by some of the scholars that probably the guy that was instrumental in having him hunted down was Sir Thomas More. And uh, he was strangled Aww. and burned at the stake. The strangling... He, so he, he... He had to die because he translated the Bible translated the, the Bible language of the people of the yes. day. Yes, and his last words oh were, open the eyes of the King of England. Amen. Now, this is where we get into the English Reformation, and a lot of people skip Tyndall. I think he's so important. And he's critical for the English Reformation here. Sure. Now, it's easy to get caught up in the side things going on in the English Reformation, because what you have there is Henry VIII mm-hmm. and his six wives. Well, three of the wives really count. Mm-hmm. And so the first wife is Catherine of Aragon. He has a daughter. Her name is Mary. Not a male heir. Big hmm. problem. So he manages to get a divorce. <sighs> and he wants to marry Anne Boleyn. Well, the church says, no, you can't do that. <laughs> He had to get a special dispensation from the church to marry Catherine of Aragon to begin with. And so now he's going and he wants his marriage to her annulled, because they don't give divorces. That's no. an annulment. And uh, since they wouldn't do it, he said, okay, well, I'm going to do it anyhow, especially mm. since Anne Boleyn was already great with child. <laughs> and mm. it was a shotgun wedding. And... So he kicks the archbishop out, and he changes that, and he has new archbishops put in, which are more amenable to the Reformation. (laughs) And so you have Thomas Cranmer and uh, Thomas Cromwell also involved with this. So he marries Anne Boleyn. She has a daughter, too. Later, he has her beheaded. I believe she died the same year Tyndall did, 1536. Mm. So he beheads his wife. Yes. What uh, a nasty was, guy. It, it was court intrigues going on there. Uh, oh, dear. She was accused of adultery, probably was not guilty of it, but it was a lot of court intrigue. And then he, he marries Jane Seymour. And so Jane Seymour has a son, Edward. Mm. So... Finally has a son. Jane Seymour dies, I think, two weeks after giving birth. Oh, dear. Yes. she Childbirth was very hard on her. Hey, he marries three other women. We won't go into them. No. That's very interesting, but we won't go into them. So at any rate, since he's already done this, his new archbishop convinces him it'd probably be a good idea to have the Bible in all the churches. Okay. And so in 1539, just three years after... Tyndall's burned at the stake and makes that declaration open the eyes of the king of England. He declares that there is going to be an English Bible in every church. This is amazing. Yes. Because we've seen it before in history where you have this imperfect man, and I mean imperfect, (laughs) and somehow God works, right, providentially to spread the gospel. That's right. That's amazing. And so who were the guys that were going to make this English translation. Well, there were a man by the name of Miles Culverdale. He was uh, probably the point man. And a man who was a very good friend of Tyndall, whose name was John Rogers, hmm. who had been working on his own translation. Well, John Rogers had 
Uh, Tyndall never, he got the Pentateuch done in the Old Testament, but mm-hmm. he never finished the Old Testament. And John Rogers did, and Miles Coverdale together, they, they put together what was called the Great Bible. Hmm. Now, the Great Bible was, was put in every church in England. That's neat. And so you have the Great Bible. And so that's uh, wonderful. Well, Henry VIII dies, Edward takes over, Edward is a sickly individual, and uh, he's very Protestant, and he brings the Protestants in. Mm-hmm. And very much uh, the church is has gone Protestant, full-blown. Henry VIII, of course, was known as the defender of the faith for the Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Uh, until he, he kicked them out, of course. Um, but at any rate, you have this this whole situation where you have a, a Protestant, but he doesn't last long. Hmm. And when he dies, he wants Lady Jane Grey to take over. Uh, she's also Protestant, but that doesn't happen. Mary comes in, the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. She takes over, and she starts a great persecution. Oh. If I'm not mistaken, I think one of the first, if not the first, to be martyred by her was John Rogers, mm. who had helped in the translation of the Scriptures. Oh, that's so sad. And so you have... A number of people just fleeing and going over to Geneva, ah. to Calvin's Geneva. And one of these is William Whittingham. Whittingham. He becomes the, I think, a brother-in-law of John Calvin. Mm-hmm. He translates the Bible, which is known as the Geneva Bible. There it is. Okay. What, what is the time frame of Calvin? Calvin is about 1536 is when he wrote his first... Yeah. Institutes, and uh, he's in Geneva there at that time. And so you have uh, William Whittingham translating the Bible, putting notes in the side. It was a very good translation. <laughs> and getting it printed and sending it. The first edition was uh, 1559, 1560. You always think of 1560 as the, mm-hmm. the big one. Of course, then Mary, yeah. Mary dies and Queen Elizabeth takes over. And so now it's legal to have a Bible. Isn't that something? And so everybody has a Geneva Bible. You know, you just you just can't uh, think in those terms because you know we're in America, and you can go get a, a dozen Bibles if That's you want. That's right. But um, there was a time when it wasn't legal to have the Bible. Yeah. The problem with the Geneva Bible is William Wodingham put too many notes in the sign that weren't exactly complementary to sure. the hierarchical church or the hierarchical rulers mm-hmm. even. So they didn't like the notes in the side. So Matthew Parker decided that he was going to make another edition of the Bible. Hmm. And his it was a, a group of bishops that came and so we have the Bishop's Bible. Oh. Never, never got traction. Most of the people liked their Geneva Bible. And it stayed that way until we had Queen Elizabeth dying and James the First of England. Well you've you've covered a lot of a lot of data here. Yeah. There's a some bunch of information. Uh, I'm looking at the time. We've got just a few minutes left. How could we summarize but all that, of this? But that all leads up to the King James Bible, which most people know. Ah. But here's the thing. Even when Mary took over, there was a lot of resistance. Why? Because people had the Word of God. Yeah. 
it transformed their lives. It transformed the society. If you want yourself, your own life to be transformed, you need to be spending time in God's Word. Uh, there it is, yeah. And, and it's right there, and it did. It transformed these people. I mean, Luther was so transformed when she got into God's Word. Mm. And and that's what happens. And it works that way to this day. To this day. This morning I, I opened God's Word. I was in a rush, you know, so I, I opened it up. I, I turned to Proverbs, you know, the the day corresponds mm-hmm. to the Proverbs chapter, and I just started reading, and and there's so many nuggets, so much truth, so much, right. you know, instruction in godliness. It, it changes your life. It does. It does. And when governments are ordered, when an individual's life is ordered on the Word of God, oh yeah, it is huge. I mean, we had talked about this, you know, the Reformation being very important for the american revolution yes but again you look at the american revolution what happened before the american revolution we had what was called the first great awakening people who had forgotten god who had uh, forgotten him got back in god's word and started remembering him and then when we had this american revolution at the end of it what happens Mm. bloodbath no. Just about every other revolution you've ever seen, there's a huge bloodbath at the end. That is so Not important. Not here. Why? I think it was because God's Word informed the mm. people who executed this revolution. And all you have to do is look at the French Revolution that followed it shortly thereafter. Oh, what a mess. And it was, it was horrific. Uh, we see people today in America, some far-left groups, Antifa and others, that are so rebellious. That's exactly right. And anarchists, that uh, it's it's fearful. And uh, I, I just want to say, too, that um, when we have the Word of God, um, we see the, some of the simplest things that can guide a civil magistrate, things like, you shall not kill. Well, right. it's not talking about the death penalty. It's talking about murder. You shall not murder. Right. Or, or stealing. You shall yeah. not steal. Um, and and that's important for a civil magistrate to know that it's not right to take what belongs to the people and redistribute it to others so yes. that he can buy votes. That is a terrible, terrible evil. Yeah. And we see these things flowing right from the Word of God. Exactly right. You see even to the point of the equality. Oh, yes. Each man is, oh, Each yes. man is, is created with the Imago Dei. Oh, my. And... You see that, and when you see the Imago Dei in each individual, you mm-hmm. have to respect each individual. The other day we were talking with uh, Pastor Harry Reader. He reminded us that in a profound sense, there's no such thing as racism because we're all part of the human race. That's right. You know, there's, there's different ethnicities, you know, different different skin colors. That, that doesn't matter for anything. Right. We are part of the human race Made in the image of God. That's the most defining thing that we have as human beings, is the Imago Dei. Well, we're out of time already for this uh, plain answer. I want to thank Pastor Mark Diedrich for joining us today. We've been talking about the Reformation all month, and uh, today was a wonderful discussion about the, the translations of the Bible. If you have a question, please email us. We're at ministry at redeemerbroadcasting.org. Mark, thank you for joining us. Great to be here, Dan. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.
wisdom of our God revealed in all the universe. All things created by His hand and held together at His command. He knows the mysteries of the sea. The secrets of the stars are His. He guides the planets on their way, and turns the earth through another day. Wisdom of His ways that mark the path of righteousness. His word a lamp unto my feet. His Spirit teaching and guiding me. Perfect will in your perfect way. 